Worship was awesome this morning. Thank you, Andrew, team. Thank you guys so much. Can we give them a hand? They come here early every Sunday morning and stay late every Wednesday night. And uh, I think they do a great job. Uh, I know um, that this church is very thankful for you guys. Well, for those uh, that went to high school at White Plains and graduated close to the years that I graduated, would, would know this teacher very well. For those of y'all that did not, I apologize, but I'm pretty sure y'all all have that same kind of teacher that I'm about to describe. But he was one of those teachers that uh, you did not want to get paddled by. <laughs> and if you're me, who gets paddled a lot, um, this was one of those guys that you did not want to get paddled by. Now, I'm, uh, I, I, that's not the point of the story. I just wanted to, to let, that, let you know that that is the kind of teacher that I'm talking about. Um, the thing about this teacher was that he was our English teacher and some of y'all know exactly who I'm about to say who I'm about to talk about and uh, yeah but he hated one song he hated several songs but he hated this song in particular he hated the song Ironic does anybody in here know the song Ironic okay thank you he hated it because, he, because everything that Alinas was saying was not ironic at all. And he was right. But that didn't stop us from singing it every time that we entered his room. So much so that he threatened to paddle everyone that came in his class singing that song. Of course, that didn't stop us. But today, the reason why I set this story up is because we're going we're gonna to talk about true irony through these scriptures, through, this, through this, this text this morning. And where we get to see and talk about true irony through the words of Matthew. We're going to be in 26, 57 through 68. If Mr. Frost could see me now. <laughs> I'm about to teach y'all true irony. <laughs> yes. Please stand with me if you will when you get there, Matthew 26. We're just going to read 57 this morning and then we're going to break down the rest of the scriptures as we go. 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. Thank you, church. You may be seated. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. So here we are. In the middle of the night, the mob comes and takes Jesus and, and, and they, they're taking him to the house of the high priest. Where at this house is gathered the council, the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, council of the Jews. So they're gathered here in the middle of the night waiting for this mob to bring Jesus in hand because they had one plan and one plan, plan only. And that was to destroy Jesus. That was their goal. You see, this is where the first irony comes into place. The Sanhedrin breaks every one of God's laws while Jesus keeps it. Let me explain. Based on Jewish documents, for the Sanhedrin rule for a trial, all criminal cases must be tried during the daytime and must be completed during the daytime. 
Not only that, but criminal cases could not be, uh, could not be finished on the, the day that they begun. Otherwise, a night must elapse before the pronouncement of the verdict. Not only that, but all cases could not be tried during any festivals. And do you know what's going on at this time right now? The Passover. Further, no decision of the Sanhedrin was valid unless it met in its own meeting place, which was in the temple. All evidence had to be guaranteed by two witnesses separately examined and having no contact with each other. A false witness was punishable by death. The Sanhedrin broke just about all their own laws and rules. See, they didn't care about what was right. They didn't care about what they were supposed to be doing. All they cared about was destroying Jesus Christ. And they have him coming to Caiaphas' house, which was the high priest. And it's somewhat ironic, don't you think? That Jesus Christ is going to end up at the house of the current high priest on trial in every way that is not legal so that they might destroy him. Now, Matthew makes sure that, that we know um, something else is going on while Jesus is being taken to the house of the high priest. Look at verse 58 with me. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. So he wanted to see what was going on. Peter wanted to see what was happening. Now all the disciples have run away. And Matthew wants us to know that Peter is following at a distance. And he makes it all the way to the courtyard of the high priest. So you have to realize that there's a lot of people here at the house. Not only do you have the Sanhedrin, which is, would, could be up to 70. You also have the servants and the guards. Don't forget about the mob of people that are with Jesus. There's a lot of people. And they've all gathered in this one place. So Peter is able to kind of blend in for a little bit. And he's watching to see what's going to happen. Now I can guarantee this one thing. I can guarantee that, that what, from what we know about Peter, Peter did not go to the house of the high priest with the intent of denying Jesus. That's, that's not... That's not why he's there. That's not, what's, that's not what is happening. We don't know what his plans are. We don't know what is really going on. But we know that him being there is a lot more nobler than denying Jesus. Yet we can remember what Jesus said to the disciples. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now we'll come back to Peter next week. But Matthew wants us to know that Peter is still involved here and it won't be long until we get to see what happens to Peter. Let's continue in verse 59. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. Verse 60, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. So the, the chief priest... The Sanhedrin were seeking to get all the witnesses together that they could in order to bring some sort of 
guilty charge against Jesus. See, they wanted to destroy him. They wanted to put him to death. But they had... But the way that they were doing this was all wrong. It was happening in an informal way. It was not the right way, and it's not the right th- the way that things were supposed to happen. And, and I don't know if it was just a, a way for the Sanhedrin to try to ease their conscience, or if they were just trying to prepare to have something for when this thing goes public in just a few hours. But for some reason, they're bringing all of these, all of this together, and they stage this trial, and they're bringing in as many people as they can in order to create some sort of guilty verdict against Jesus that will eventually allow them to pronounce the death sentence and destroy him. So they're bringing people in, and they can't find anybody that can that can that has a, a witness that is credible enough to destroy and to stand against Jesus. They cannot find something that gives them opportunity to carry out their plan. Now, I can imagine the longer that this goes and the more witnesses that come forward and they can't find anything, the tension in the room is rising. I'm pretty sure you can feel it in the air. And they're trying to accomplish their purpose It's not working out the way they want it to work out. So the tension is rising and then we see that something has happened that changed the direction of the evening. Let's continue with verse 60. At least two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. They finally have something. It's not a capital offense. They cannot get a guilty verdict deserving of death from it but at least they have something. They have two required witnesses to create guilt. You have to have two or more according to the laws of the Old Testament. And they have that. The problem is Jesus is not responding. And it's funny how they're saying something about Jesus that isn't really true. It's not accurate at all. And it's no surprise that the false witnesses are false, right? And they're saying something about Jesus that Jesus really didn't say. If you remember when Jesus was in Jerusalem and he came into the temple and drove out all the money changers, you see they were, they were selling for a profit in the wrong kind of way, the items for sacrifice. But he says to the people, you are turning my father's house into a place of business. The leaders came to him and said, give us a sign. What gives you this kind of authority? And Jesus Christ says this, and you can find this in John. Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. First off, he never says that he would destroy the temple. In fact, he asks them, he invites them to destroy the temple. And secondly, it wasn't, he wasn't talking about the physical temple. He was talking about his body. So that's where the second irony comes into play here. The second irony is the false witness who accused Jesus of claiming that he will destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days provides a true testimony about Jesus' death and resurrection. 
Put it differently. This accusation and the Sanhedrin's acceptance of it as a crime makes Jesus' temple prediction possible. If Jesus isn't sentenced to death, his body as temple cannot be destroyed. And in three days, rebuilt via resurrection. Do you see what's going on here? It's all coming together. <laughs> Just hold on. It gets better. Think again about the tension that is rising. Well, the chief priest just can't handle it. This is, the, this is his response. 62. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? 63. But Jesus remained silent. Does that remind you of a passage in Isaiah? Lie upon lie. False charge upon false charge was made against Jesus. But he said nothing to defend himself. Bringing us to the third irony, where the Sanhedrin mocks Jesus' claim to be the Christ. Their violent actions begin to fulfill the prophecy about him in Isaiah 53, 7. Let me read it to you. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He knew that it was utterly futile to try and defend himself in those circumstances. Furthermore, he knew that by defending himself, he would actually be opposing his father's will. So he allowed the slander to go unchallenged, knowing that he must suffer and die, but that he would be vindicated on resurrection morning. Jesus remains silent and it drives the high priest crazy. He loses it. He can't handle it anymore. And he yells out to Jesus, continuing in verse uh, 63. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you, you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. He says, will you just tell us? Tell us if you're the Son of God. Tell us. <laughs> 64. Jesus said to him, you have said so. Does this sound familiar? This is the same response that Jesus gave to Judas whenever he asked, is it I? Jesus responded with, you have said so. I love the way that R.C. Sproul says it. Perhaps Jesus was saying, I'm not going to say that I am the Messiah because you have no concept of what the Messiah is to be and you do not understand what it means to be the Son of God. So I might as well not use that kind of language among you. So Jesus is affirming what Caiaphas just said, but I want you to know that Jesus does not let Caiaphas' words stand as sufficient. Listen to this. Jesus sets the story straight and lets Caiaphas know what he really meant and what he said by those words. Notice the next thing he says, 64, but I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his robes and said, you have uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his 
blasphemy. Caiaphas says, we don't need witnesses. We're all witnesses. He is a blasphemer. 66 says, what is your judgment? He turns to the council. He's made a proclamation of blasphemy. And then he asked the council to their decision, for their decision. Now Leviticus 24, 16 says, whoever blasphemes in the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. The high priest has just said, has just made, saying that Jesus Christ is blasphemed. And we know what they're going to say. We know the judgment. 66, and they answered. They answered, he deserves death. Let's back up for a second. Let me explain why Caiaphas gets so enraged and loses it, right? This guy gets so mad and he rips his clothes because of what Jesus has just said and done. Let me explain to you why. Now, I want to remind you that Old Testament tells us that the high priests are not allowed to rip their garments. They cannot do that even if their father or their mother dies. They cannot tear their garments in mourning if they are wearing their garments as the high priest. And here, the acting high priest, in response to what Jesus has just said, putting aside the Old Testament law saying that you are not to rip your garments, and he rips them. Let me read 64 again. I want to tell you why Caiaphas got so mad. 64, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. See, what Jesus is doing here, he's making a reference to the Old Testament. And Caiaphas and the rest of the Sanhedrin know exactly what he's saying. Let me read it to you. Let me read to you those Old Testament references. You don't have to turn there. I just want to read them to you. The first one is going to be found in Daniel verse 7, 13. Uh, through 14. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the son of man. Did you catch it? 64 says, coming on the clouds of heaven. This scripture is what Jesus is referencing to when he makes this statement and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin would have recognized it immediately. They would have known exactly what he's saying. Let's continue. The Ancient of Days. Sorry, my bad. Uh, and he came to the Ancient of Days. He was represented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus Christ is alluding to a passage that defines what it means to be the Messiah. And when he says that, he is the Messiah, what he is saying that he has, has, that he has reigned and ruled from God, the Father that puts him on equal reign with God. He is saying that he is the king. See, that doesn't set well with Caiaphas. That's not all. Jesus also refers uh, to a passage out of Psalms 110. We're going to read that together. 1 through 4. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. See, that's where Jesus says, Seated at the right hand of power. 
Let's continue reading. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Skip on down to verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. That's the order of Melchizedek. Jesus just alludes to a passage that connects this idea of kingship with priesthood. Jesus Christ just said to Caiaphas, yes, I am the Messiah. What that means is I am the reigning, ruling king, ruling with the power and authority that is God's alone. And I am the Messiah who is and forever shall be the one true reigning high priest. And that makes Caiaphas go crazy. That's why he screamed out blasphemy and rips his garments. And this is where the fourth irony comes in. Members of the Sanhedrin, oh, this is good. Members of the Sanhedrin pass judgment on the one who will someday pass judgment on them. You see, the only people in that room blaspheming is everyone else but Jesus. And then things turn vile. 67. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Now, I've never been spit upon. And... Uh, I don't think that I would handle it the same way that Jesus is handling it right now. You know, I've been, uh, I've been spit on, spit upon by my sons as far as spit up. And somebody's overspray has, has hit me a couple of times. <laughs> and that's not fun. That's not fun at all. But I have never had someone come up to me and spit in my face. That's tough. Hmm. And Jesus just stands there. Just imagine for a second the creator of the universe standing there in front of them. And they are repeatedly spitting in his face. And then they make fists. And they begin to beat him. Can you imagine? They blindfold him. And they take turns slapping him. And every time they slap him, they say, prophesy to us. Since you know so much about the future, Mr. Messiah. Who is it that struck you? Think about that. Think about this. Every spit in the face. Every fist in the nose, every slap across the cheek is an incredible picture of the beginning of God's wrath being poured out on Christ. And it was the wrath that was due to you and to me. And Jesus Christ willingly drank that cup. So I have a question for you this morning. How could we not follow Jesus? How could we not follow 
the Savior. Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the King, the High Priest. Here's what that means. Listen to me. Because Jesus Christ is the one true Son of God, the reigning ruler over all things, perfect in obedience before the Father. Because He is the High Priest once and for all, Jesus Christ being the High Priest can represent us before God because He doesn't have to first take care of His own sins before He can address our sins. He represents us as a perfect priest. And because he is the son of God without any blemish, completely perfect, the reigning ruling king, because of who he is, has absolute, has also substitute, uh, sorry, has, lost my track. Because of who he is, he can also substitute for us as a perfect sacrifice. See, Jesus Christ faced death, but it was no ordinary death. Jesus Christ faced suffering, but it was no ordinary suffering. You see, every element of suffering and every fabric of his death was carried out in bearing the sins of the world. All your sins, all my sins, Jesus bore as king and high priest so that we might be forgiven. being spit in the face, being punched in the face, being slapped and ridiculed. It's just the surface level of what Jesus Christ is beginning to drink for you and for me. How can we not follow him? How can we not follow Jesus Christ? When you wake up in the morning and you consider on whether or not you should pray or read your Bible, would you consider this? The one who is waiting to meet with you, to unveil his truth and illuminate your heart that was once hardened by sin, unable to see anything from God. Would you consider that the God that gave his son is ready to meet with you and speak to you and move your heart? Would you consider in the morning when you wake up that, that that's the God that is waiting to meet with you? How can you not want to meet with him and hear from him and know him and experience his presence? He suffered and died for you, for me. What if God calls you somewhere where you cannot imagine that you would ever go? Let's start small. Maybe a new career. Maybe a new profession. Maybe a new location. Maybe a new house, maybe a new neighborhood, maybe a new country, maybe a different people. If God calls you, how can you not go? Jesus Christ suffered and died on a cross for you and for me. How can we not go? Jesus Christ calls us to give sacrificially, to sacrifice something in our life, to serve someone in our life. And that may actually cost us something. If he calls you to sacrifice, how can you not follow him? Jesus Christ left the glory of heaven. He took on human flesh and he suffered for you. He sacrificed his life for you and for me. How can we not obey him? 
How can we not follow him? How can we not this morning decide to follow Jesus Christ? See, we just barely scratched the surface of what Jesus Christ has done for us, expressed in Matthew. He's been falsely accused, spit upon, beaten, slapped, ridiculed, and mocked. We've barely scratched the surface of the wrath of God being poured out. And yeah, it's, it's more than enough to look at Jesus and say, I will follow you. I will serve you. One last question. So if Jesus is calling you this morning to follow him, I invite you to come down, talk to one of us. Find out what that looks like. Would you come and follow the one that took our place, bore our sins so that we might be saved? Let's pray.